Well, one TV preacher said he did. He said that Jesus appeared every morning in his bathroom mirror as he shaved, and they talked together. Another man said that Jesus appeared at the bottom of his bed every night before he went to sleep to pray with him. I would take it that both of them have never heard the verse in Scripture which says in 1 Timothy 6.16, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. You cannot see God according to Scripture. If you know your Bible, you know the answer to that question is a big no. In fact, our passage makes much of that. If you look at the the passage we shared this morning, it begins and ends with that very idea that God is unseen. No one can ever see God, it says in verse 12. And verse 20 says, how can you say that you love God which you haven't seen if you don't love your brothers which you have seen? It's an important concept in this passage that we need to get a hold of. It's a direct quotation, actually, verse 12. It's a direct quotation of John 1.18, who John the Apostle also wrote both of them. And in that passage, it says exactly what he says in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. Now, with that in mind, think about this. There are numerous people in the Old Testament who said they have seen God. Moses said that he was going to see God. In fact, God said, I'll kind of put a cover over you so you can't see all about me. Because he says, if you look at my face, you will die. You can't see God and live. But there are people who saw God. In fact, I read them all this week. There are 12 different appearances of God where people can see him. And some of them, when they thought that they had seen God, trembled because they thought as a result that they were going to die from it. So if no one can see God, then why does John begin 1 John in, these, in this way? Verse 1, he's talking about God, which we have seen with our eyes, verse 1 of chapter 1, which we have looked upon, verse 2. The life was manifested and we have seen it, verse 3. That's what we have seen over and over again in the first three verses he says we've seen him we've seen it see it's a concept that we can't avoid in this text how is it possible that we can see the invisible god john 4 24 says and you know this verse god is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth god is unseen in and of himself there are no instruments i looked on the internet there are no instruments that will help us or give us the ability to see god If God is to be seen, listen, he must reveal himself. This is the only way that the invisible God can become visible. And that's why in John's prologue in 118, which we referred to already, he says this is what God exactly has done through Jesus. See, that's why chapter 4 and verse 12 starts with this. No one has ever seen God who was at the Father's side, it says in John 1.18, in his bosom. In other words, they are such a close relationship with one another. And it says, here's what Jesus has done about to God, or revealing God. He has made him known. It's the Greek word exegeted. God has shown everything that he is. The invisible things of God have become visible in Jesus Christ. So here's what we say this morning. Follow me. If you want to see God... You look at Jesus. John 14, 9 says, Jesus' own words, If you have seen me, 
you have seen the Father. See, Jesus perfectly reveals the Father. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. But there's a problem, isn't there? I think you might even notice it right away. Jesus isn't here anymore in person, is he? He's invisible now too. He is ascended into heaven. So what are we left with? First John says we are left with the apostles' eyewitness testimonies. See why he starts that way in First John 1? We have seen him. See, they've seen God because they saw Jesus. But there's a problem continues, right? Because we don't have the apostles anymore. We can't consult with John. We can't say, hey, I'm going to call up Peter and have an interview with him tonight in the evening service. So how do we have fellowship with God? How do we have fellowship with the apostles? Because they're gone. They're not here. We do it through Scripture. The Bible is how we see God. But in this text, listen, it's more than that. As great as that is, it's more than that. Because John says that God still has a living image of who he is as the God of love. In other words, he says this, the invisible God who made himself visible through Jesus first, the apostles and the scriptures, has now made himself visible in the world, listen, through us. Take that in for a moment. See, God is still unseen and he reveals himself in flesh, but not in Jesus he does in that way, but not in Jesus personally as he's here. He does it through the body of Christ. You and I as believers, as the church, we make the invisible God visible. That's why, can you look at the text with me? Chapter 4 and verse 12. That's why John can so easily move from saying this. No one has ever seen God, verse 12. And then he says this, he moves right into it. If we love one another. You know what he's saying? No one has ever seen God, but this is how you can. This is how you can see God. Not in your mirror when you're shaving, not at the end of your bed at night when you're going to sleep. You know how you can see him? In this church. In the people who are God's people. That's how he can move that way. See, that's why John moves and says, if you love one another. That's why the end of the section in verse 20 says this. You cannot say that you love the invisible God if you do not love the visible people in your own church family. You cannot. You see what he's doing? He's telling you this. We have the awesome, unbelievable responsibility as a church, as Christians, to make the invisible God visible. John Hellerman says this, just as Jesus is the incarnation of God in this world, so now the church is the incarnation of Jesus in this world. I want you to feel the weight of, and this is why I started my sermon this way today, I want you to feel the weight of it. I want you to know that the world knows God who is love, and you know how they will know that God is love? By the way that you and I love one another. We are the visibility of the invisible God in this world. So the verse before us in our text, verse 11, says this. Because God so loved you, listen, hear it, feel it. You ought to love one another. Not ought suggestion. It's not just a good idea. It's an obligation. Do you feel it now? You know why three times in 1 John he says ought Chapter 2 and verse 6, we ought to walk as Jesus walked. You know why? Because we are him now. 
It is our job to be him, to walk like he walks so people can actually see, oh, yeah, that's what God is like. 3.16, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Why would he stress that we would love each other in a cruciform, sacrificial way? Because that's what God is. And if you want the world to be changed, they have to see it. They can't see the invisible God. They can't see Jesus in person or the apostles, but they can see you. Do you see how he's elevated our responsibility? 4.11, we ought to love one another. We ought to do it. The only way this world is ever going to change is if they see Jesus in me and you. See, it's so crucial, crucial for our gospel mission. Three times in our text, verse 9, verse 10, and in our text, verse 14, he says, God has sent his son three times because in all of this message, he doesn't want you to forget, you loving other people changes lives for eternity, he says. The first time he says, see, he's, he has come into the world or sent Jesus into the world because he wants him to bring us life. The second time, he is the propitiation for our sins. The third time, he is the savior of the world. You know why? Because we bring that good news to the world. How do we do it? We do it in love. Rabbit trail. Ready? A little aside. Agnosticism and atheism preaches philosophical naturalism. That just makes you sound smart. But all that really means is a worldview without God. It just means that everything, nothing has to do with God because they don't believe in God. And they believe in evolution. Let me tell you the difference between what we have and what they have. Ready? And why the world needs us. Atheism and agnosticism does not have an ought to love one another. They don't. They can't tell you that you ought to love one another, like Scripture says. You know why? A lot of atheists or agnostics, they believe that love is good. They try to be loving people themselves, but philosophically, they can't provide an ought. You know why? They can't tell you why it's a good reason that you ought to love one another. So you cannot go anywhere else except in the church that preaches the Bible. You can't go anywhere else in this world and get someone to tell you why you ought to love one another. Because our world believes in no God, he doesn't exist, has no bearing, and we are all here by cosmic accident, right? We are here because of evolution over time and billions of years. So why wouldn't we tell someone when dealing with other people, here's what you should do, survival of the fittest. You should go for yourself. You don't have to love one another. You don't have to care for one another. Why in the world would we ever sacrifice for one another? Why would we ever, do, why would we ever forgive? Why would we ever serve someone or show grace to someone at great cost to ourselves? Why would we ever do that? It's about you. It's about surviving. It's about you making it in this world. See, our world has no basis for this. But God's word does. Christians can say, we ought to love one another. You know why? Because God is love. Not just something he does, it's something he is. And if he created you, not over millions of years, but if he brought you in this world, created you by his design, and he says, I want you to know I love you at great cost. And based on my love for you, John says, you ought to love one another in this world. This question I started out with, have you seen God? You know what it leads to? It leads to have people seen God in you? So how do we do that, Pastor Walker? How do we go about loving one another? How can we go about representing Jesus? And what does that have to do with the assurance of our salvation? Because isn't that what our book is about? 
Well, he's going to answer all those questions for us in the last few minutes we have by two little indicator lights, which we've already referred to in previous sermons. There are two of them in our text. Would you look there with me? Chapter 4 and verse 13 and chapter 4 and verse 17 start with this. By this. You see the little phrase, by this? It really could be, this is how. This is how. He's going to give us two answers to our questions that will help us understand how important it is and what it means for someone to actually have seen God and its implications. So number one, the first one in verses 13 through 16, if you have seen God, your love for others will be abiding. John is very fond of this word. 18 times he uses it in 1 John. Five times alone in the paragraph that I read to you. See, when he says by this, it's an indicator light that demonstrates whether you have a relationship with God or not. Whether the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. How do you know? How would you know this morning? Someone asks you, hey, they mentioned your name. How do I know? How, do you have the Holy Spirit in you? How do you know? Well, they don't, it's not, there is no Holy Spirit reader device. We can't get Obi-Wan to come, oh, the Holy Spirit is strong in this one. No, it's not a feeling that it gives. It's not a magical sign that proves that you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can't speak in tongues. You're not going to give a prophecy. Those aren't the ways that demonstrate it, not according to John. So how do you know that he's in you? Look at verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. You see what he's saying? Someone who has the Holy Spirit of God will confess this, and the word confess means to say the same thing that God says about it. Here's what you'll say. You'll say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, the verse says, and he's the Savior of the world. And here's what it looks like. The invisible God has the invisible Holy Spirit come into your life when you get saved, and it becomes visible in two ways, that you confess him as God and take him as Savior of the world. But you see, Pastor Walker, wow, that's not much of a proof. You know, anyone can say, I believe in Jesus, right? How does that mean anything? Well, it's more than just saying out loud, I believe in Jesus. Look at it. It's a transformational belief. Verses 15 and 16 have the almost identical phrase in it. God abides in you, verse 15, and you abide in God. And then he says the exact same words almost in verse 16. They're parallel. God abides in you, you abide in him. But the difference is the content that goes with it. In verse 15, it says, you believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God. And if you believe that, God abides in you and you abide. But the second one, he changes it. He changes it, says that your love will abide. You see what he's saying? Here's how you can tell that the Holy Spirit of God is in you. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's demonstrated by the way that you love people and keep loving people. Here's what he's saying. The Holy Spirit's in you when you demonstrate yourself to have a lifestyle of Jesus' love. God says this, love in, love out. It's not one-dimensional, it's two-dimensional. It's confessing Jesus to be who he is and the reality of who he is and his love being lived both on the inside and outside of your life. I don't think it's a stretch to say this, hear me. For John, it's inconceivable that you could be filled with God's love for you through the Savior Jesus and not be filled with the love of God for others. 
anyone who has ever been given a glimpse into the awesome love of God by the Holy Spirit has to walk away, in my estimation, staggered without words to properly describe it and understand it. Listen to Psalm 103 and verse 11. The psalmist says this, and this is how God wants to tell you how he measures his love for you. Let this blow your mind this morning. Let it wreck you. He says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. Let me say it again. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love toward those who fear him. Take that in for a moment. Do you know we live in the Milky Way galaxy, high above the earth, traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. Okay, everybody, you get participation today. Everybody on three, we're going to snap your fingers. One, two, three. In that amount of time, speed of light goes around the world seven and a half times. In the snap of your fingers. If we went and were able to go at that speed to get to the end of our single galaxy at that speed would take 100,000 years. Astronomers say that in, in the universe there are 80, at least 80 billion galaxies. 80 billion galaxies, each one having billions and billions of stars. To get to the edge of the known universe at the speed of light would take 15 and a half billion years. And that's all that we know. Do you see what the psalmist says? As the heavens high above the earth, so listen to this, so great. It just isn't worthy, is it? That little phrase, so great? Can we come up in our finite vocabularies with any greater things to say than that? I mean, look how high. I mean, if you take that literally, look at the universe. How great. God says, look up there. See the expanse. See the measurements and know this. That's how I measure my love for you. So great. So now let's talk. Can we? Let's talk about how great your love is for others. Crickets, right? doesn't compare, does it? Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor, said it this way. The love which God has given to us when he sent God's son from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the the grave to glory, that love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, beaten, spat upon, pierced, crucified, love which fasted, prayed, taught, healed, wept, sweat, bled, and died. That is the love that will embrace you if you know Jesus for eternity. Let me ask you, does your wife know husbands so great a love? Does she? Is that how you treat her? Because the Bible in Ephesians 5 says you should. Parents, do your children know so great a love in the way that you parent them and discipline them and disciple them and love them? Or do they get the not so great love? The easily irritated version 
The self-centered, moody, conditional, one-sided, impatient, indifferent, non-sacrificial, not-so-great love. Do you see what he's saying? Oh, it's easy to show the love at church when everyone's looking. But what about the so-great love when no one is looking? What about our words and our responses? See, here's what he's saying. You know how important it is? Do you feel the ought? Do you know why he implores us and commands us to be like Jesus and love like Jesus and have the cross? You know why? Because the world is waiting for it. Lives should be changed because of it. Marriages should be different because of it. And our church could be radically different because of it, he says. That's the first by this. Because if you have seen God... If you have seen God, your love will be abiding. That's the kind of life that you will live because you are motivated by how great his love for you is. But the second by this, in verses 17 to 21, relates this truth to us. If you have seen God, your love will not only be abiding, it will be complete. He uses that word three times, once in 17, twice in 18. It doesn't mean perfect. It does translate it perfect, but it doesn't mean perfect meaning sinless. It means perfect being complete, whole. It's mean mature, it would be translated. Here's what he's trying to communicate. We have seen God when his love is completed in us. Well, what in the world does that mean, Pastor Walker? Well, verse 19 says it succinctly. We love We love, and in context, I think it's others. We love others because he first loved us. In other words, he's the source. He initiated it. You can't love people. You can't do what he's asking you to do. Even though in verse 21, he commands you to do it. The ability to keep God's commands. And we sing that in a song. We can't do it of ourselves. He wants you to know that you can't do it unless the Holy Spirit of God really does live within you. If you're abiding in him and he's abiding, see, that's it's impossible Without that, a complete love is one that the Holy Spirit gives us when we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And it, well, here's what it does. It transforms you from the inside out to love people differently because of it. And in so doing, you make the invisible God visible. But we have a problem, you and I. John's directly addressing it. That we cannot have assurance of our salvation. We can't say that we have seen God if our love is incomplete. See, a complete love is two-dimensional. And everyone here this morning, and I would think it's why you come to church, everyone here would say this, I love God. I came here, whether it's a religious I love God or relationship I love God. But you came here, I say I love God. But that's the problem. We think that if we love God and come to church, that that's what he's looking for. Oh, it's so much more. He wants to have an I love God that is evidenced by I love others. The vertical and the horizontal have to go together, but an incomplete love is a one-dimensional love. It's the love that says I love God, but I don't really go to church very often, maybe Sunday morning occasionally, because I love God, but I don't really care about the people at the church. I don't see them as my family. I love God, but I don't really get involved in ministry I'm not really here to do things for others. I'm here just to take in everything I can get for myself. And so I have my own agenda. And when it doesn't go my way, then I'll find a different place to go. It says this, I love God, but I'm not really caring about the needs of others. I'm not really sure that I know the names of others, much less their needs. 
But John says this, beware if that's you. Beware. Because verse 17, in the strongest of terms, says this. You know why we need to have that love that abides? You know why our love should be completed vertical with the horizontal? You know why? Because verse 17 says, here's a purpose. So that, see it? So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Do you see what he's saying? If you have complete love, you will have complete confidence. But if you have incomplete love, you will have incomplete confidence. If you live a life of one dimension where I think that I say I love God, and I think I really want to love God, but your love for people is very little, if anything, here's what he says. You will stand before God today, someday, and here's what you will do. You will not have confidence. Contrast this. You will have fear. It doesn't have to be that way because he ends the sentence, for as he is, meaning Jesus, so are we in the world. And I would think you would agree with me to say this. If there's ever been a person in this world who ever walked this globe and had a complete love, it was Jesus. See, and he had no fear of death. He says, and that's how Christians ought to be because as he is, so are we in this world. But when you're afraid of death, and there are many who are, perhaps some here this morning, it's because you fear punishment. See, John says this, there is no fear in a perfect love. If your love is complete and you love God and you love others, you won't have any fear. In fact, that kind of love, here's what it does. It casts out fear. It's the same word, ekbalo. You know what it means? The same word used to cast out demons. See, when you love God and you love people, and it's tangible, you can touch it, you can see it, you can feel it. He said, when that's the kind of love, the sacrificial love you have, see, you won't have fear. You will cast fear out. You will lay your head on the pillow every night, and you won't wonder where you're going to wake up if you don't wake up in this world. You'll never have that problem. But there are not everyone who lives with a complete love. John implicitly points out that fear of punishment is related to the object of fear. Let me give you an example. If you have a fear of water, like my mom did, it implies you have a fear of drowning. Vacation after vacation, we went to the ocean. We'd go to hotels that had pools when I was growing up. I've never, ever, my mom had a swimsuit. and never saw my mom go in the water. Never. So she never went in the ocean. She'd sit on the edge of the pool with her, her legs sitting in the water. And as I got older in high school, I realized my mom doesn't swim. How can that be? She made me to go to the YMCA to get swimming lessons, but she herself cannot swim. So one day I asked her, I said, are you okay? As she's sitting on the side of the pool, are you okay if I push you in? She looked at me, not if you want to live. <laughs> you know why? She's afraid of drowning. She couldn't swim. Oh, how about this one? A fear of heights. Do you know what fear of heights is related to? A fear of falling. A year or so ago, I got these. Have you seen them? The virtual reality goggles. Have you seen those? You put these big things on, and I'll just tell you up front, I'm afraid of heights. So I put these on, and they have this game that you can play on it. Well, it takes you all the way up to the top of the Empire State Building, and you walk out on this little ledge 
It's, it's this wide and three feet long, and you can literally see. It's like you're standing on it literally in New York City, and you are so high. And it even creates wind and reactions. Birds fly by. I mean, three seconds, I wanted to die. And then, it tell, then you're supposed to go walk out to the edge as close as you can. And then you look down. It literally is like you're looking down. Oh, I said, I, I almost fell on the ground. Have you ever seen someone who's wearing those things that's so authentic? They do all kinds of crazy things. I have seen people run through the television and all kinds of stuff. Oh, you know why I fear it? Because I fear falling. Fear of fire implies a fear of burning, doesn't it? We fear the punishment because we know the reality of our lives. You know, the only other time in the entire New Testament the word punishment used is Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus says this, and these will go away into eternal punishment. That's scary. See, life assurance doesn't come because 30 years ago you said a prayer. It doesn't come just because your beliefs are orthodox, not the assurance part. It comes because you have a completed love, that you love God, and that love for God is expressed in loving others. An incomplete love Now, this is as strong as it gets, and I'll be done. Can you read verse 20 with me? If anyone says verbally, I love God and hates his brother, ready? Not the first time in 1 John. He is a liar. An incomplete love is a complete lie. An incomplete love is a complete lie. John says, if you say that, You're a liar. You don't really know God because a failure to love others means this. A person has failed to really see God as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He has failed to see the revelation in the apostles' eyewitness and their words. They really don't love God at all. And so he says, so honestly, how can you say that you love God whom you have never seen? That's our point. You can't see God. So Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8, having not seen, you love. So how can you say, John says, how can you say that you love God and you've never seen him when you don't love other brethren and sisters whom you have seen? Do you see what he's saying? And then he says this, strangely enough, verse 21, you know the command, he says, you know the command, love one another, he says, that's the command. Why does he stop there? Because he wants you to know you'll never be able to obey it if you don't have the heart to do it, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, if it hasn't changed you, if it hasn't transformed you, if it's not real, if it's not two-dimensional, that will be an impossibility for you. So let me ask you one more time. Have you seen God? The answer to that is yes, if others have seen God in you. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, you may be here this morning on Labor Day weekend. Maybe you came with someone because you're friends. Maybe you're relatives. Maybe you're just visiting. But as you hear the word of God this morning and the spirit of God relates that to your life, 
You might say this morning, I don't really think I know God. Maybe I thought I did. I, I know I'm religious. I believe the Bible and some of those. I believe God. But I have to say, there's quite a disparity between my love for God and my love for other believers. That shows up in my commitment to church. It shows up in the fact that I'm not involved in ministry. I'm not really concerned about the lost. I don't remember the last time that I helped someone and met their need in church because I'm not here often enough to know anybody hardly. Well, Pastor Walker, I don't really know where I stand. I don't want to be numbered among the liars on Judgment Day. Here's what John says by this. See, he wants you, and I want you to have assurance. I want you to know. I want you to be confident, but perhaps you're here today, and the word that best describes where you are with God is fear. I just really don't have that assurance. Can I tell you this morning? We're going to have an invitation. You can come forward. If you come forward, nothing changes by walking down front other than the fact it gives us the opportunity to let someone take the scriptures and show you that how you can have life eternal and know it and be assured of it by the grace of God. But maybe you're here this morning as a saint of God, a believer, a Christian, and you put your trust in Christ, but you'd have to be honest. Pastor Walker, that love that you talked about, that so great love is not so great in my life. Not so great in my marriage, not so great in my relationship with my kids or perhaps even others at this church. I have to admit, it's about me most of the time. Perhaps you're here as a Christian this morning and that is the cry of your heart. Would you just raise your hand and I'll pray for you as we close. Pastor Walker, I need to be moved by God's so great love for me so that it would evidence itself in my so great love for others. Pray for me. Would you do that? Slip your hand up and I'll do that as I close. Thank you. Someone else, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else, thank you. Balcony. Anyone else, thank you. Anyone else? Ah, Father, you are love. And you gave your only son to be the propitiation, to take away the wrath. Oh, God, I pray for those who fear Judgment Day because they know their love is incomplete and what that communicates. Oh, Father, I pray today that you would give them humility and brokenness. They might come and have someone encourage them, help them, that they might really know you if they don't. For saints of God, those who raised their hand, and perhaps those who did not, oh, Father, help us. Help us to see the world needs to say when they look at this church and the people of this church, there's the difference. The difference is, oh, how they love one another. Father, may that make, mark us at Faith Baptist Church and all of our relationships. That makes it so great to be a member here. Be glorified in that, I ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.